0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Teddy Wayne, who joined me via Skype. He is the author of the novels Cap Toil, The Love Song of Johnny Valentine, and Loner. He is also a columnist for the New York Times and a regular contributor to Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, and McSweeney's. His novel Loner tells the story of David Fetterman, a freshman at Harvard who becomes obsessed with his fellow student, the beautiful Veronica Morgan Wells. As he slides deeper and deeper into his infatuation, his behavior veers from unsettling to completely disturbing. We began the interview with Wayne describing his main character.
1: Well, the narrator of Loner is David Faderman. He's a 18-year-old uh, Harvard freshman who begins his first day of school. He comes from suburban New Jersey, the son of two lawyers, so a kind of upper-middle-class background. And he had a very socially bereft adolescence uh, without any real social success or um, any anything pleasurable to speak of. So he's hoping to remake himself at Harvard. And his very first day there, he sees in a dorm orientation meeting, a a girl named Veronica Morgan Wells, uh, with whom he becomes instantly infatuated. And the book follows and tracks his increasing obsession with her over the course of the fall semester, as he contrives to get closer to her.
0: And so what was the impetus for you for this novel? Was it a character? Was it um, uh, some question that was nagging at you about our society? What was it?
1: It was a combination of a few things. The, the main drive was, was seeing all these young men who are routinely described as loners by the media after they commit an atrocity. Um, I don't need to name I don't need to name them all right now. There, there's so many of them. But very frequently, it's someone who commits some sort of crime, often often on a mass scale. And when they root through their lives, they they find out, the media finds out that they are, you know, socially isolated, um, don't have many friends, don't open up much. And it seems to be almost a kind of epidemic in that it afflicts just about only men and very often, again, younger men, although often they're frequently older ones, too. So I wanted to write from the perspective of one of these guys. Um and not to caricature him from the outside as someone you would spot a mile away as, as having problems, but inhabit him from the inside, even create a little bit of uncomfortable empathy for the reader uh, so that we see the world from his perspective. And uh, that seemed to be me to be a more interesting approach to to take on the subject like this.
0: It's interesting, you, you talk about his obsession, and in the very beginning, um, he first sees Veronica at a, a dorm meeting. that's their first day at school, and she walks in, and he's very taken fr- by her. And at, at very first, you could have this idea that, oh, it's love at first sight. But mm-hmm. what immediately separates love at first sight from what he is experiencing?
1: Well, first of all, love at first sight itself is... Seems to be an overwrought phrase. I think there's it can be infatuation at first sight, real love. It should not be simply visual or even just the first impressions, but should be more about your understanding of the other person's soul and how you've connected and so on. So automatically, that I, I sort of reject the notion. But then David, in his mind, is even more cynical. He's um, entirely transactional. He he grades people as to where they land uh, along the social hierarchy. So part of his attraction to Veronica is not just that she's very beautiful, which she is, but that she's socially powerful too. But on top of that, she comes from the 1% of Manhattan, whereas he, as I said, is upper middle class, New Jersey, which is certainly doing better than 98% of the country. But to him, where she is, is this kingdom far away that that's separate from everyone else and he wants to be part of that. So his attraction to her is not just romantic or even popularity, social in in the college microcosm, but uh, economic or socioeconomic.
0: One of the things that I was very curious about while I was reading this was I kept saying to myself, like, who is David? Is he a loner? Is he a stalker? Is he mentally ill? And I think um, that's a benefit for the reader to not quite be able to place him. And obviously you named it loner. What is he truly?
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you had that reaction because I was very careful not to pin everything on one motive or motivation or one uh, valence of his personality, so that, you know, there are certainly aspects of him that are um, on a sociopathic or psychopathic spectrum, for instance, but I didn't want to make him a classic psychopath because that, again, to me, is both not that interesting, it reduces him to a, a DSM-5 classification, but also lets the culture off the hook and makes it sound like this is simply an anomaly, a bad apple, as opposed to a product of his environment. Um, But then there are things, you know, he there's a he describes being bullied briefly as a kid, uh, very briefly, just like for, you know, a few months in fifth grade. Typically in a book like this, I think the the impulse might be to make him the product of bullying. But I, you know, that's that's there, but it's not the whole of him. Um, As I said, there's this anger that he's not part of the top one percent, but that's not the whole of it. So I, I was really going for a spectrum of influences and wanted to avoid tagging him as a representation of this one thing. The one thing that it seems to be that readers are responding to mostly is David as an emblem of toxic masculinity, which is the way that uh, the culture conditions men to be violent and aggressive and not sensitive or not vulnerable. Um, And while he's not a classic case of that, I think we tend to assume a thing of like the sort of fraternity brother, the lacrosse player, um, the Donald Trump as the as the classic emblem of that. He is a a, a strain of it. And so that seems to be what people are, are gravitating to most.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Teddy Wayne, author of Loner. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So as the novel moves on, he ends up hooking up and dating Veronica's roommate, Sarah, just so he can be close to her. And they have their own issues in their relationship because he takes advantage of her in a lot of ways. And she truly liked him. In some ways, I think, well, he's just a creep. He, he was just a creep. And maybe in the 60s, he would be a creep but there's so much more violence maybe available to us today.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, part of it, we, we see his full interiority as the reader. Sarah is seeing just a glimpse of it and he's both in some of the early scenes, but also presumably the scenes he's not narrating. He's, he seems more normal. Um, So I think that's part of it. And along with the fact that when you're 18, no one knows anything or Sarah certainly is very inexperienced so that she might not see that this guy, who seems to have potential is actually has less potential than, than she's imagining. Um, but I think you're right too, that this is his re, his interplay with Sarah is the more common form of, um, I don't want to label it in any way, but what he's doing with her is just as bad as what he eventually does with Veronica. Uh, it's just more, banal, I guess you could say, the the banality of evil, that this is the sort of thing that happens in dorm rooms all the time. And it's been, I guess the book sort of throws up a smokescreen in that his obsession with Veronica dominates the narrative so much that it's almost easy to overlook the fact that how he's reacting, how he's acting with Sarah is itself pretty poisonous.
0: Veronica was able to see David in a way that Sarah couldn't. Because mm-hmm. he was more, he was more secretive with Sarah. He had ulterior motives that were about Veronica. And since when he was with Veronica, those ulterior motives were always clear. And she knew who he was. She said, basically, if I asked you to murder Sarah, uh, you would. You would. And he's sort of faced with being truly seen in that moment. Can you
1: talk yes. about that? Yes. Yeah. I mean. um, David, I should point out for those who haven't read it, you know, helps Veronica with her essays over the course of the book and basically cheats for her. And he has a a relatively dim view of her academic intelligence. He thinks she's someone who needs his help, but she is clearly sharper than, than he gives her credit for. And, yeah, I think Veronica, if anything, is, is even more cynical than David in, in seeing people as... Uh, wanting to, people want to use each other and seeing the world as sort of Machiavellian um, or Hobbesian and seeing the ways that transactional, transactionality uh, defines a lot of romantic relationships. She's uh, suggests her parents are in one, that her father's rich and her mother's a socialite and that it's a pairing that comes from each of them using the other for some reason. Um, So the If if anything, Veronica is even more schooled in this subject than David is and therefore understands that David wants her for these reasons, too. Whereas David, while he's aware he wants her for these reasons, doesn't recognize what's wrong with that, really. He just sees this as a a normal desire. And Veronica has a more critical take on it um, and seems to be more aware of David's real personality than David is self-aware of it
0: on the book jacket at the very front, the very first sentence is David Fetterman has never felt appreciated. And I was thinking about that last night about never feeling appreciated. Like whose fault is that? Is that, Is that his view of the world? Does that mean his parents didn't treat him the right way? Does that mean just because he was bullied for a few weeks, he never felt appreciated? And at what age do we have to take responsibility for not feeling appreciated? And here he finds this girl that likes him, who could have appreciated him, and he wastes that too. So there's something, there's a disconnect in his head.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's an area that is partially, again, Something's off with his wiring, but also you could I, I view him too as a as this sort of symbol of of the white male who feels like his privileges are now precarious suddenly after you know millennia on top uh, and certainly in the U S centuries on top feeling as though finally his powers are being taken away from him and instead of being okay with that or recognizing it's time for other people to have a turn. Um, or that, frankly, it's not even his powers not being all that diminished. It just seems that way to him. He reacts with aggression and feels threatened and aggrieved. And so his sense of being unappreciated is, you know, highly delusional. He's at Harvard right now. He can go anywhere he wants in America and be essentially welcomed. Um, every door to him in the future of employment is is pretty much open But the the tiny things that he feels are not open to him, which is the world Veronica belongs to, um, that that gets at him. Uh, You know, I I was just reading the article about Trump, uh, the the audio tapes um, that I did with him years ago, where he just also feels like nothing's ever enough. He always needs more um, more attention and more love and, and more acclaim. And it's not just for you know, psychopath. A lot lot of people feel that way, too. And often it's just, you know, a lack of a sturdy ego, I think, that actually is comfortable with who you are, um, that you need external validation at all times.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Teddy Wayne, author of Loner. Our interview was recorded on Skype. How self aware do you feel David was? And the reason, one of the reasons I asked this is because on page 72, so it's almost halfway through the book, but more in the first third, he's thinking and he says he's wondering about mistakes and learning from their mistakes. And he says he wonders if having the ability to time travel back to certain moments in which our fear or impulsiveness got the best of us and resulted in, un, in an unsatisfying outcome. We would actually alter our behavior knowing what we know now, or if we would end up repeating exactly what we did the first time, surrendering, surrendering to those elemental directives incapable of deviating from some preordained essence of our character. Can you talk about this?
1: Yeah, that's really about him wondering how much of, of life is just destiny and how much free will do we have? And can you actually deviate from your fate or do you have real free will? And the book explores this tension. And David's, at another point, indicates that, at least socioeconomically um, and in most ways, that destiny controls it, except for the, the special few who can rise beyond destiny and can mold the world according to their desires. The implication being that he's one of those special people. Um, so in that moment, though, he's also concerned. He's just said something that maybe he shouldn't have said to Veronica, I believe. Right. I think that's what he's just referred to. And he recognizes it didn't have the right outcome. Uh, he probably should have said something differently, but if he could go back in time, would he still have done the same thing? Um, or even knowing what he knows now, could he not have changed it? and there's a little sense that maybe he's too weak to to change and that he can't do this um and that there's glimmers of self-awareness that he's not as special as he thought uh this is again retrospective thinking he's narrating the book well after the events of it have passed so he now knows better um so I, i presume at that time he wouldn't have known anything he wouldn't have thought about that sort of thing but now that he's had some time to process everything He's a little bit, tiny bit more self-aware. And the book can also be viewed as a charting of his gradual but only slight, uh, slightly developing self-awareness. And that he has a little bit of a revelation at the end of the book about something, I won't say what it is, that the sort of thing he wouldn't have been able to think about during the present tense of it.
0: What elements did you feel that you put into his character, if at all? But I, th- I think you did. Did you add into David's character so that readers wouldn't be completely repulsed by him? Meaning, was there some level of sympathy that we were supposed to feel for David? Sympathy, empathy, relation, anything?
1: Yes. Um, and again, in the first draft, or early drafts, it was less there. And my editor felt as though I was making him too... Alienating for the reader, and I was resistant to this until I heard uh, the TV producer, writer, creator Norman Lear talk about. Um, give a long anecdote, which I won't go into now. But his the upshot of it was he realized that if you're going to write, if he's going to write about Archie Bunker from All in the Family, he needed to give Archie Bunker, who's a bigot and you know racist and homophobic and sexist, something for the audience. To latch onto, so he's not simply that. So he made him a guy who's trying to provide for his family, and that was sufficient to get viewers that show to be on board with him. And without that, if he'd just been a, an angry guy alone in his apartment, caring so only for himself, you know that wouldn't have worked. He needed to have a family around him that he that he cared about. So, likewise with David. You know, things like the bullying episode, again, it's brief, but that's a sort of a small thing to give readers a chance in uh, a way in. Uh, he's socially awkward. Most readers of fiction reckon, are familiar with that feeling. Uh, he feels like an outsider. Everyone just about has some understanding or experience of that. He um, has a hard time connecting with people. You know, various universal human desires. He, he craves intimacy, ultimately. He's got a very skewed idea of what intimacy is, and it's only from Veronica that he wants it, not from someone like Sarah, who's a better match for him. But um, to give him enough very human desires and fears that most of us could connect to enables us to then, I think, be along with him in in his mind as he he does increasingly reprehensible things.
0: Well, it's interesting because he, at, at least apparently so, does come from this pretty normal mainstream middle-class family there's no evidence of abuse in his house his parents you know he had uh, an older and younger sister and maybe he felt different because he was the only boy and he was the middle child but he he didn't seem to be traumatized really in his youth and I'm always wondering when you see the news about these young men who shoot up uh, uh, a movie theater or like Brock Turner, who's are are just defended by their parents. Like, how do you how do you write about the parents of children like that? And what were your thoughts about that element in the book? Because they are included.
1: Yeah, I likewise didn't really want to vilify the parents or make them, you know, the the easy way out would have been to have one or both of his parents be a monster who created this little monster in turn. But they seem to be fairly normal parents who have raised two daughters, sisters on either side of David, who seem fine and who are fine. And so it's about David, therefore. Um, part of it is, again, that he's a young man and young women don't seem to have these kinds of issues of of profound social isolation and anger as a result of it. Um, it seems to be a, a solely a, a male thing or a male affliction. Um, and I just read a, an article by uh, Andrew Reiner in the New York Times about uh, increasing numbers of men who don't want to have sons. They only want daughters because they are afraid of not necessarily turning out a, a David Faderman or a Brock Turner, but the ways that young men are, are, we're starting to see the way that they have a hard time in adolescence. I think we've usually historically focused on the ways young girls have a hard time in adolescence, namely with body image and sexuality and things like that. But how young men, you know, if there's someone in the school who's sitting by himself and sitting by him or herself in the corner of the cafeteria every day, it's almost surely going to be a boy and, and not less likely a girl. David points out that even the most ostracized girls in his high school seem to have a, a best friend still with them, whereas he, you know, he did have this group of sort of friends, but I think he feels much more isolated. And partly because uh, boys at that age, especially, just don't have the capacity for friendship in the same ways uh, that that girls seem to.
0: I've read some interviews with you, and your and your sort of where you were talking about sort of the the privilege that is is given in in when you get to be in a place like Harvard the privilege you've had the privilege you you will continue to have in a school like this and the focus of this book on kind of like the more social aspects of school but in the very first or this is in the second chapter when they're learning from it's a proctor um, in in one of his classes and he's talking about how the great, one of the great things in college is how these, this unrelated stuff starts unifying in your mind that you can learn something in science and it will connect to poetry and how your world is expanding and growing denser and everything becomes one thing. And I love that because I think that also can happen in writing where when you're thinking about maybe a problem in writing and then you go to the 7-Eleven and someone says something in, in line in front of you that connects your problem. And I love that, how you touch on that part of college. Can you talk about that aspect?
1: Yeah, it was important to put that in. The, the book is such a, uh, since we're seeing all filtered filter through David's head, such a negative view of college as this place of just social climbing that it's easy to forget, oh, it can be a great place where you actually expand your mind and, and become a different person in a, in a good way. And so the, the the proctor in that moment is talking about what should ideally happen, that you should be studying all these different subjects, and while they're disparate, they should start connecting to each other, um, you know, in some, even in, in, in tenuous ways. And David, on the other hand, everything instead connects just to Veronica. And so everything about his world, worldview, which should be expanding at the time, narrows down to this tunnel vision of just, how does this connect to, to Veronica? Um, but you're right. It's a, it's a metaphor, I guess, for writing as well, or writing a book, in that anything you hear or think about throughout the day, if you're, if you're obsessed enough, as David's obsessed with Veronica, Um, With your with your subject or with your book, you can start using those things and those scraps of information I I always think of um, Is it the magpie that that collects things and puts them in a nest? But you you see where I'm going with this That, that you just sort of pick up anything and that can become part of the nest that you build and It's it's a fun. It's one of the fun things about writing a full book instead of just maybe a short story that for a few years anything you might use and come across has a chance to be part of that nest.
0: You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Teddy Wayne, author of Loner. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you? Maybe it influenced you while you were writing this or just influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, actually. uh, So there's a the opening half page of Don DeLillo's White Noise. um, I thought of when I wrote the opening half page of, of Loner. So I'll read the White Noise and I guess briefly talk about it. Then I'll read the the opening of Loner too. So this is from DeLillo's White Noise, um, which is set a campus novel, just like Loner is. The station wagons arrived at noon a long, shining line that coursed through the west campus. In single file, they eased around the orange I-beam sculpture and moved toward the dormitories. The roofs of the station wagons were loaded down with carefully secured suitcases full of light and heavy clothing, with boxes of blankets, boots and shoes, stationery and books, sheets, pillows, quilts, with rolled-up rugs and sleeping bags with bicycles, skis, rucksacks, English and Western saddles, inflated rafts. As cars slowed to crawl and stopped, students sprang out and raced to the rear doors to begin removing the objects inside. The stereo sets, radios, personal computers, small refrigerators and table ranges, the cartons of phonograph records and cassettes, the hair dryers and styling irons, the tennis rackets, soccer balls, hockey and lacrosse sticks, bows and arrows, the controlled substances, the birth control pills and devices, the junk food still in shopping bags, onion and garlic chips, nacho thins, peanut cream patties, waffalos and kabooms, fruit chews and toffee popcorn, the dum-dum pops, the mystic mints. So, you know, he's describing just, again, opening day of college and parents and kids coming in with all the stuff and literally all the stuff. He he lists, I don't know how many things there, but maybe, you know, perhaps two dozen objects that people have. Um, and it's a book about, frequently about the ways we deny death. And in doing so, we have to sort of surround ourselves with things and we create this, the white noise of, of consumerism and of uh, of a background and sort of window dressing to distract us from the fact that we're all going to die someday. And so look at all the stuff we, we do to, to do that. We have games, we have food, we have drugs, we have, um, entertainment devices. And, but more than that, he could have just picked anything. What's so brilliant about this is a few things. One is the, uh, the sounds of the words that first, uh, set of, of objects, there's a lot of B and S sounds, boxes of blankets, boots and shoes, stationery and books, sheets, sleeping bags, bicycles. And then even the words start melding into each other. So, bicycles, there's like the hard K sound from S to K, suka, so and then skis is the next thing. So, then it does that in, in its own word. And then rucksacks goes in sort of reverse from the K to the S. So, you know, he could have said, with skis, bicycles, rucksacks, but he just sort of finds a way to have the sounds bleed into each other. So they all become, I guess similarly, as as the dorm proctor and loner says, all sort of become one thing at some point. Um and then it ends with after all that list, the last object is the Mystic Mints. Mystic is capitalized. Uh I don't know if it's actual real um thing, a real brand name mystic mints i'm not sure if it is but even if it's even if it is or even if it's not the suggestion of some kind of spirituality connected with these things that we're looking to our objects even our junk food for some sense of spiritual worth and that's what we're all chasing when we distract ourselves with all these other objects so i thought of this um specifically for the opening of loner do you want me to read uh the loner opening or do you have any do you want to talk about this any further so bring it on. Same thing, first half page of Loner, or so. David, my mother said, we're here. I sat up straight as we passed through the main gate of Harvard Yard in the caravan of unassuming vehicles, rooftops glaring under the noonday sun. Police officers conducted the stammering traffic along the designated route. Freshmen and parents lugged suitcases and boxes heaped with bedding posing for photos before the red-brick dormitories with the shameless glee of tourists. A pair of lanky boys sailed the frisbee over the late summer grass in lazy, slanted parabolas. Amid welcome signs from the administration, student banners interjected, and economic inequality. Silence is violence, and Yale equals safety school. A timpani concerto pounded in my chest as we made landfall, upon the hallowed ground that had been locked in my sights for years. We'd arrived. I'd arrived. For the tuition we're paying, my father said, carefully reversing into a spot, you'd think that could give us more than 20 minutes to park. So I thought of um, White Noise with this in that I, I had a lot of false starts for this book for the beginning. I didn't know where to begin it. And some drafts began... Um, where they're leaving from their home in New Jersey earlier that day, or driving across the George Washington Bridge, I think was one of the big openings. And then later they began uh, where it's in the present as David's narrating it. And we now know for sure he's going back several years to this, to this first day. And I decided just to start it at the beginning of the actual story. His arrival at school felt like the most immediate way to, to plunge into it. That's what people remember. They don't remember the leaving that day. They remember getting into uh the campus wherever they go. Um likewise as with Delillo I tried to have um some sort of consonance with with words and then the sounds of words. So a pair of lanky boys sailed a frisbee over the late summer grass and lazy slanted parabolas. Uh lanky and sailed, late summer, lazy slanted to have these words start to blend blur together. Um to have a few things here that are representative of, of other s- concerns throughout the book, so we pass through the main gate in, in a caravan of unassuming vehicles. David sense that he's sort of one of many who all look the same, and he wants to differentiate himself. Uh, police conductors, police officers, conducted the stammering traffic along the designated route. This sense of law and order, and of the fact that you've got to sort of follow others and you can't deviate from that, which David will. Try to do eventually, um, and then most importantly, three big main themes of the book that are sort of hidden or, or, or suggested in the, in the signs, the student protest signs that are up, and economic inequality, which is uh, clearly an anxiety of David's—the fact that he's not as rich as Veronica is. Silence is violence has to do with sexual assault, and Yale equals safety school—it's a kind of a joke, um, but. This idea of of hierarchy and constantly thinking about status and even among, you know, Harvard and Yale, the need to differentiate yourself or to put yourself above the person next to you is a primary drive of David's. And then the sort of uh, deflation of the end of this of, of the end of this buildup where David feels like he's finally gotten there, he's arrived and his dad, his middle class father is still grumbling about the tuition and the fact that they can't park for more than 20 minutes. So a lot of the what become the concerns of the book are here in this first page and I feel like it's always nice to try to do that to try to lay out a map uh, for readers of what are some things that will be talked about throughout this book but on your first reading you may just view them as simply grist for the mill it's just just there for the, the story and then on a rereading you might see how these things develop later on
0: So where do you write
1: uh, typically now just in my apartment. I used to, used to rent office space at points or go elsewhere, but now I mostly just do it in my, in my place.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, I usually, um, the, the healthiest thing I do is exercise, uh, go for runs, things like that. Um, they're probably unhealthier, you know, internet meandering procrastination things I do too that we all do.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Uh, Now it's my wife, who is a fiction writer herself, so she's a very good person to show it to, and I don't feel as guilty putting it on her as I would on Friends.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: I've gotten, because I'm also a freelance writer, freelance journalist, and write nonfiction and, and satire, i Gotten so much writerly rejection in my life, especially earlier on, but even now to an extent, that uh, I'm fairly desensitized to it at this point. And it just rolls off my back. And I've had enough moments of one place rejecting something, for instance, and then another place embracing it that I recognize it's not always about you. It's often about the taste or subjective assessment of someone else. And And again, it's just happened so much that it doesn't bother me the way it it probably did at the beginning.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I really like the word uh, C A C H E, cash, not C-A-S-H, cash. I like the hard K, hard C sound that melts to the the soft C-H sound and kind of like what the word implies to a storehouse of something.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Teddy Wayne, author of Loner. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.